Good evening, and welcome to the Legal Eagle Review, an informative and thought-provoking weekly show covering legal issues affecting everyday people. We know that there are many things you could be doing with your time, and we appreciate your decision to share this time with us. I'm Irving Joyner. And I'm April Dawson. We're law professors at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and we're your co-hosts. The Legal Eagle Review is sponsored by the NCCU School of Law. We thank you for joining us this evening. Historically, for African-Americans, education has been a top community and political priority since the enslavement era. Throughout the Reconstruction era, this priority continued as African-American leadership supported by allies and sometimes governmental agencies engaged in robust efforts to build and grow institutions that provided for the education of African-Americans. During this reconstruction period, African-American leaders decided that the obtaining of a free and appropriate education was a priority and that self-education was necessary because you can't allow your children to be educated by the enemy. With the introduction of Jim Crow segregation, the development of African-American educational institutions continued as millions of African-Americans were educated in academic knowledge and armed with the ability to confront and survive the racism which our communities faced. With the advent of integrated education, this academic priority continued as this pursuit was forced to also embrace the struggle for an appropriate and equal education for those who were assigned to desegregated institutions. As a result, demands for Black studies and history curriculums and the hiring of African-American teachers and administrators were launched. Today, we are now confronted with a robust political struggle to prevent the erasure of African-American history from the entire academic environment. During the past legislative session, the North Carolina General Assembly enacted a law to prevent the teaching of history uh, and other courses, which were deemed by them to be an iteration of critical race theory. That legislation was vetoed by Governor Roy Cooper and the General Assembly leadership was unable to overcome that rejection. In the present legislative session, efforts are underway to pass these bans again and have already passed the House and will likely pass the Senate. With a Republican supermajority in place, the General Assembly will be able to override any veto that is issued by the governor. So tonight, we will again discuss the contours of this struggle to prevent the destruction of our history in North Carolina and around the country. Our guest is Professor Peggy Nicholson, a clinical professor of law and the supervising attorney for the Children's Law Clinic at Duke University School of Law. So with that, uh, Professor Nicholson, thank you for uh, joining us this, uh, this evening. Thank you for having me. Let me just start off this uh, conversation by asking you to kind of describe 
how you became interested in dealing with this topic of uh, the erasure of uh, African-American history and related courses uh, here in North Carolina and, and around the country. Yes, thank you. Um, so I am an attorney in the Duke Children's Law Clinic and in that role and for the past 10 plus years of practice before that, I've focused my um, legal career on advocating for the rights of students and families. And so that often means representing and enforcing students' rights in discipline hearings, in special education proceedings, in racial discrimination instances. Um, and so in doing that, I you know, come at this subject and this work from a very um, students' rights perspective and the ability of students to access their right to education, I think a fundamental piece of that is the right to um, have open, honest conversations about the role that race plays in our country, in their schools, in their communities, in their lives, and the chilling effect that these this legislation and legislation like it has on the teaching of those concepts and the conversation around those concepts um, ultimately infringes on students' rights. Um, as well as educators and other people in the school building. Well, as as a litigator, and uh, you, you you've had some really big cases uh, out there and working with uh, young people, children, on a uh, regular basis. How how important to you a, a, in, in that respect is the value of studying uh, African American history and the history of marginalized uh, communities. Right. In working in my past work, um, I've done some work with young people around issues, including racial equity in their schools, the school to prison pipeline. Um, when I was an attorney at the Southern Coalition for Social Justice, we had a youth steering committee who identified you know, school policing as a primary issue. And they are living day to day in these school environments where they are seeing the role that race plays. They are seeing the disparate treatment of themselves and their peers when it comes to school discipline and when it comes to policing, when it comes to placement in AP classes. And I think that because many of the students I've worked with were able to get some grounding in the history of racial oppression in our country and how we got to the moment today, they were able to better recognize those manifestations. They were able to see the different treatment to understand why the culture of some of their schools, um, that they didn't feel valued in those cultures because of their blackness or brownness, um, and really put it in the timeline because they had that foundation. So I saw it as a really critical piece for them understanding their current issues that were impacting them. And I think in some districts where those opportunities to learn about Black history, the history of colonization in our country are not available, when I've worked with students in those districts, it is a much longer journey of education to get to that understanding of their current um, positionality and agency, really, on some of the issues that are impacting them and their schools and communities. Professor Nicholson, can you share when you gained 
your kind of understanding of the of the nuances of of race and the place where this question is coming from so you as a children's advocate so you've been able to see the impact of having that grounding that foundation in racial issues and i'm i'm assuming not having it as well but as far as your own kind of personal and professional journey wh- when did that begin for you did you start better appreciating the intricacies around race as a lawyer, or did that happen when you were in college, or did it happen when you were in high school? And the reason why I ask this question is because it relates to at what age do we expose students to these very difficult, challenging issues. And so black and brown students, of course, who are living it day to day, but also white students who may be completely unaware. And unless they're exposed at an early age, they don't fully appreciate the challenges and how we can move into a better place. Right. Thank you so much for that question, because I do think as a product of the North Carolina public schools, I grew up in Iredell County in the Iredell State School School System. I did not receive what I would consider a good grounding in African-American history, kind of the framing of these issues. It was probably not until about halfway through college that by virtue of having some amazing professors who started kind of putting this frame on um, the history of our country um, that helped me kind of see um, even though I was interested in public interest lawyering, interested in being a child advocate, seeing um, that children's advocacy was also a racial justice issue. And then again, had the benefit of my first legal job after law school, having a, a managing attorney who saw the work we were doing representing children um, as, again, a, we, a civil rights issue, a racial justice issue, and putting that frame on it. I'm I'm lucky now that I live in Durham and I have children who are entering the public school system in Durham and um, you know we are which does a lot of training there offers camps and I can see even sending my children to those camps having um, teachers who have been trained by anti-racist educators like um, Dr. Bullock that you know the benefit that they are, I was behind the eight ball. I, I was, you know, almost a full adult before I got this framing. And at such an early age, they're able to see and articulate, you know, my white children are able to see and articulate some of the problems that for me were decades later in understanding. Um, so there's a dichotomy there, you know, that it makes it very clear how how the journey can be different. It doesn't mean students won't get there if they don't get it, because, you know, but it's going to take a lot more work and longer. And so the, the, the critical piece of getting it early, I mean, in my, my son was in kindergarten when he went to the We Are camp and learned about racial identity and um, started asking really important questions. And, and I, in a completely developmentally appropriate way, you know, they were able to, to talk about it and handle that conversation and give me tools to handle that conversation with him. You you, you mentioned uh, earlier that as you uh, you looked at uh, this 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 issue, uh, you approached it from the perspective of children's rights and uh, the notion of uh, an appropriate education, which is a guarantee under the uh, North Carolina uh, Constitution. 
when, when you look at this from, from a legal framework with uh, uh, children's rights uh, in mind, what are some of the legal issues that you see uh, that, uh, that can be and should be raised in opposition to some of the efforts by uh, the legislature, particularly here in, uh, in North Carolina? Yeah, well, in North Carolina, you know, we do have this fundamental right to a sound basic education that's been recognized in our state constitution. And while that case was is a funding case, uh, and, and a lot of it is about the funding needed to ensure students receive that, there's also a pretty clear recognition of there is a certain floor of, of what constitutes a sound basic education. And the court has specifically said that a sound basic education must provide the student with sufficient fundamental knowledge of geography, history, and basic economic and political systems to enable the student to make informed choices with regard to issues that affect the student personally or affect the student's community, state, and nation. And so in my view, teaching students about African-American history, teaching students about our country's history of racial privilege and oppression is a key piece of providing that part of a sound basic education to make sure that they develop the democratic thinking that they need to participate in a self-governing democracy, which one of the, the core purposes of public education. Um, so I think that from a, from a legal right, this is part of their constitutional right to education to be unrestricted in learning about and, and engaging in conversation with educators and their classmates about these important facts and, and then concepts and, and then current day manifestations of the way um, race influences their schools and communities. Your point about having that education early facilitates the understanding of democratic thinking and how you can be engaged. And, and as you were making that point, I couldn't help but think about the polarized politics that, that currently exists. And in looking at like our current reality and then reflecting on what you were saying about not having had um, some of that robust training or education or exposure to racial issues until you were in college, the majority of people in this country don't go to college, mm -hmm. right? They, they are not lawyers. They don't um, work or practice in a space where it's natural to think about the implications of race and racism and, and civil rights issues in their day to day. And so we're going to have to take a quick break. But when we come back, I'd like for you to share your thoughts and, and expand upon this whole notion of if our students aren't at a young age, aren't being given kind of the full exposure to, to what our history is, what our current reality is, how that impacts our ability to engage in constructive political discourse such that we can move forward in our democratic state. So you're going to have a few minutes to be able to, to think about that, but we're going to have to take a, a break. You're listening to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. 
we have with us here in our Zoom studio, Professor Peggy Nicholson. She is a clinical professor of law and the supervising attorney for the Children's Law Center at Duke University School of Law. We hope you stay with us. We'll be right back. North Carolina Central University School of Law was founded in 1939 to provide opportunities for African-American students to become lawyers. Embracing our heritage, the mission of NCCU Law is to provide a quality, personalized, practice-oriented, and affordable education to historically underrepresented students from diverse backgrounds to increase diversity in the legal profession. We empower our graduates to become highly competent and socially responsible lawyers and leaders committed to public service and to meeting the needs of underserved communities. NCCU Law is excited to announce the creation of the NCCU Technology Law and Policy Center, made possible by the generous pledge of $5 million by Intel Corporation. The mission of the NCCU Technology Law and Policy Center is to produce technology-conscious lawyers who will use technology in alignment with the law school's mission to, one, facilitate the efficient, effective, and ethical practice of law, and two, increase the access of legal information and services to underserved communities. You can learn more about the Technology Law and Policy Center by visiting the NCCU Law website. And we're back. Thank you again for tuning in to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. I'm April Dawson and my co-host Irving Joyner and I have been talking with Peggy Nicholson. She is a clinical professor of law at the Duke University School of Law and supervising attorney of the Children's Law Center. So Professor Nicholson, I ended the last segment by asking you to, if you would share with us your thoughts about basically the relationship between receiving a full complete even if it's challenging, kind of education, historical education, and the ability for citizens to engage in a productive, full way when it comes to our democracy, when it comes to um, the governance of this country. Yeah, so I think that, so along the way, like students are starting to get grounding in what it means to be a citizen, what it means to be, um, you know, a future voter, what it means to be an engaged member of your community. And to eliminate race from that conversation until this child gets to a certain age, I think starts to compartmentalize that subject in potentially very harmful ways where, you know, patterns of behavior, patterns of thinking are, are ingrained and are having to be undone, right? So to me, the kind of early integration of these topics in developmentally appropriate ways with educators who are trained and how to involve different views in the classroom and promote civil discourse um, at an early age will create patterns of behavior that 
hopefully become more and more ingrained as students get older and then are in a position where they are making important life choices, um, actually starting to vote, deciding what they want to do after graduation. And so I think that to me, because we know that race does impact everything in our country, in our society, to try to like segment and isolate these conversations, um, one, doesn't make sense and does potential harm to later when you're when you're trying to like all of a sudden introduce concepts where like, well, why did nobody talk about this when we were learning about the founding of our country? Or why did nobody talk about this when we were talking about, you know, our community history? Um, so I think that to me, it's just an integral part. And I will also add that I think, you know, back to the idea of understanding what is happening in the school and the community, because I've worked with many clients and students who, because they don't have the language, feel very isolated. Um, for example, I'm thinking of a student who, um, and a parent who was in a, they were a black mother and a black son in a predominantly white school in a rural part of North Carolina. And they had contacted me because they felt targeted by um, the SRO and some of the school administration. And there had been some incidents where they just felt very unwelcome. And, you know, they knew that something wasn't right. And in digging in, you know, we found past complaints against the same SRO targeted at Black parents. We found really disproportionate rates um, of suspension for Black students, you know, kind of lack of AG placement or kind of honors tracking placement for Black students. So all of that kind of collective information that signals a culture of the school that does not recognize and support the value of this black student and black parent. And you know, when they learned that, they did not have access to that information, to that context, you know, they felt so much less isolated. It wasn't their individual problem. They were part, they were a victim of a systemic issue at this school. And then we could strategize, you know, like how do we tackle this systemic issue so other people don't feel so isolated? So other people don't just leave the school quietly. Um, because they think they must be the problem. So I think, again, that's another piece of, especially when it comes to students' rights, to have a sound basic education, to feel welcome, and not have a, a racially discriminatory school environment. Um, that history, that ability to talk openly and freely about race and racial identity is really critical to being able to enforce those rights. Um, and and actuate those rights in the school environment. Can you take a few minutes and kind of help our audience uh, to understand what the uh, North Carolina legislation is and what the North Carolina legislation would do to impede uh, the uh, ability of students uh, to learn and of uh, the teachers to teach uh, this, uh, this material in, in the school system? Yeah, that's a great question, because when you actually look at the language of the bill, um, you know, 
not as much is prohibited as you might think or as people might want you to think is prohibited. Um, it is framed as an equality and education bill, right? But we know the purpose of the bill is to chill educators, to chill school districts from teaching certain things. Um, and so digging into the bill, there are certain concepts that it says public school units shall not promote. And they define promote as compelling students, teachers, administrators, or employees to affirm or profess belief in those concepts. So in my view, simply talking about one of these concepts would not necessarily be compelling someone else to uh, profess or affirm it. But you have to really dig into the language to see that. And you have to have, you know, you have to have a legal kind of training to see, okay, well, technically that would not be a violation of this bill. We shouldn't expect teachers to have to be lawyers and do legal translation of this bill. Mm -hmm. And the people who drafted this bill and have introduced bills like it around, they know teachers aren't lawyers and they just want teachers to take the safest course for fear of getting in trouble. And that leads me back to another piece of the bill, which at this point in the current version of the bill, there are no um, criminal penalties associated with violating this bill. There's no kind of parent right of action to sue a teacher who violates the state statute. I mean, there could be employment consequences for violating a state statute if it was passed, but, you know, teachers should not be feared of being dragged to court over a violation of this statute, but that's not the, the way it's framed in the media, right? There's a lot of fear being whirled up in the hopes of teachers being so scared and so chilled um, that they just would rather not talk about it because teachers already have a lot of pressure. Teachers already have a lot going on and you know, the idea of having to face employment or other consequences, you know, is just not worth it when they're trying to get these students to where they need to be. And it's, it's very difficult. It's a difficult position to put teachers in. Well, let me just kind of follow up uh, on that. And uh, particularly, particularly with the uh, notoriety that has been attached now to this anti-CRT uh, effort, critical race theory uh, effort. Uh, in uh, Johnson County, uh, for example, uh, the county commission uh, voted to withhold or threatened to withhold some $850 million from the uh, school board, county school board, unless they adopted a uh, prohibition on the teaching of uh, anything that would be remotely associated with uh, critical race uh, theory. And while the North Carolina legislation does not command that, uh, it enables that and encourages that kind of, uh, uh, of, of, of reaction uh, in response to that. Legally, what can people do to counter an effort like occurred in Johnston County 
in Johnson County is not as uh, right-wing as it used to be, uh, but it is certainly uh, an example of what is happening at the local level as a result of the uh, narrative that's being portrayed at the national level, and then as is articulated by people at the, uh, at the state level. So what are people to do <laughs> with these kinds of things? With these pressures. You know, it's, it's tricky because as, as you know, teachers are in a really precarious situation in terms of employment rights in North Carolina, where we don't have a teacher's union, we don't have protections. And we, I mean, we do have the North Carolina Association of Educators and CIE, but we don't have collective bargaining rights where they can kind of put some protect employment protections in place for teachers and access, you know, good, solid legal representation if somebody was um, accused of violating a law or a county resolution or something, you know, to fight back. Um, that being said, there are free speech rights at play here. Um, the legislation that is being has been introduced in the North Carolina legislature prohibit uh, specifically for exempts um, First Amendment speech from the prohibition. So if something is protected by the First Amendment, it cannot be prohibited by any local ordinance, state law. We we know that 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 federal constitution and the free speech rights that come under that First Amendment um, trump any local ordinance or local resolution or state law. Again, it, litigating a free speech case or fighting back to define this is free speech is incredibly difficult. And I think that um, while I, we want to, as the legal community, we want to support educators to do it, you know, we also have to show up and support them when they do it. So I think that that's one thing that, you know, we as the legal community hopefully can do some work to make sure teachers understand what is prohibited, what isn't prohibited to show up for them when they are potentially um, fired or, or retaliatory actions taken against them for exercising their free speech rights. Even non-lawyers, parents, students, community members who disagree with these resolutions or this state law can show up on an individual level for the teachers in their own community and at the General Assembly by letting their legislators know that this is not acceptable, right? This is not the will of the people. And so those are a few things that I think are in, already in the works of being organized to support educators and students during this moment. Um, but it, I will say it is it is a, a tricky situation. And I your example of Johnston County, I have a few cases in Johnson County right now. And a lot of them involve the fact that they don't have enough teachers. They don't have enough educators to provide the services that are mandated by federal law. They're gonna continue to have that problem if they put this pressure on educators because educators can leave. And who suffers the students and the parents and the community members who are left there in Johnson County without teachers? So that's a position that they're putting their community in. 
So you mentioned that one of the things that we can do as a community to support our educators is to make our voices be heard at the General Assembly. Uh, and of course, there are so many challenges there, like, I mean, when we think about gerrymandering and, and, and the drawing of the map such that it doesn't matter um, significantly what the makeup of the North Carolina um, uh, voting populace is, if you're able to draw the maps in such a way that, you know, one party is able to maintain power. Can you, in, in going to the General Assembly, um, can you provide some additional uh, guidance or ideas about how we can make some movement in going to our legislators about this issue? So I'm not a lobbyist, so I don't have as much insight on the General Assembly as perhaps others would, or perhaps even y'all have, <laughs> having, <laughs> having been there working with folks before. Um, you know, I think that one thing I would encourage people to do is connect it to that student rights framework to, to think about this as a right of students that is being infringed upon. They should have a right to information, a right to um, true history, a right to educators who are not chilled and constrained um, to talk about basic facts of our country's history. And if anything, we should be promoting these conversations in developmentally appropriate way, employing resources, funding resources that are gonna give educators the tools they need because many of them probably miss this foundational knowledge if they went through the public schools of North Carolina much as I did. Um, we have a General Assembly who really, seems to embrace parents' rights and the idea of parents' rights as well. So I think that also as a parent, if you're a parent and have children in the public school, also bringing that into the equation. Like I want my child to be able to talk about these things in school. I want with their peers from across our community and to have facilitated discussions and learn information about these important concepts. So that would be my two cents. I'd love to hear what y'all think might be effective as well. This is the uh, Legal Eagle uh, Review, and we are talking with uh, Professor Peggy Nicholson, uh, a clinical professor of law at uh, Duke uh, University School of Law and is the uh, supervising attorney for the uh, Children Law Center uh, there at uh, Duke. And we're talking about this uh, threat uh, to the uh, teaching of uh, African-American history and uh, CRT-related uh, uh, courses and the uh, uh, defense of our community, our teachers, our children, uh, and their right to uh, learn about uh, these uh, these topics. We're going to take uh, our break uh, right now. I want you to uh, stay with us, and, uh, and we'll be right back. So uh, hang in there, and we'll, we'll return to you. Hello, my name is Brittany Burks, and I'm currently a 2L at the North Carolina Central University School of Law, and this is your Community Spotlight. 
The North Carolina Central University School of Law offers four certificate programs. Upon completion of the specified requirements, law students may earn a certificate in civil rights and constitutional law, dispute resolution, tax law, or justice in the practice of law. As a part of the Eagle Promise, NCCU School of Law offers our students four outcomes upon graduation. Completing a degree program on time, becoming socially and globally engaged, proving leadership, and graduating market ready. More information about any law degree program is at 919-530-6610. My name is Brittany Burks with the Legal Eagle Review. Thank you for listening. Good evening. My name is Reginald Woods II, and I am a current 2L at the North Carolina Central University School of Law. And I would like to personally thank you for supporting and listening to the Legal Eagle Review, an informative and thought-provoking show that is made possible by the Virtual Justice Project of the North Carolina Central University School of Law, as well as listeners like yourself. For more information regarding the show, or past episodes, or the latest happenings surrounding our host, please follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at The Legal Eagle Review. Again, my name is Reginald Wist II, and thank you for listening. Okay, we're back on the uh, Legal Legal Review. Thank you so uh, very much for staying with us as we continue our conversation with uh, Professor uh, Peggy Nicholson, who is the uh, supervising attorney at the Children's Law Center at uh, Duke University uh, School of Law. And uh, we're talking about uh, the uh, threat to uh, efforts uh, to teach African-American uh, history or the history of marginalized uh, people within uh, our community and preparing our young folks uh, to go forward and participate in a a democratic uh, society. And uh, Professor Nicholson has been very uh, forthcoming with uh, uh, her understanding of how this process works and how uh, the law um, can be imagined to address uh, these uh, these concerns, um, you had mentioned at, at some point uh, this notion of uh, uh, student bill of rights and the rights that uh, students have uh, uh, not only to learn but to be educated and to be educated in a manner that will prepare them uh, for a life hereafter. Can you kind of elaborate? On uh, just how you you see this this the scope of uh, this protection and this entitlement uh, that the uh, government is or the North Carolina government in particular is uh, obligated because that's an affirmative right uh, that's in our constitution rather than a defensive uh, one as we find in the uh, federal constitution. So can you just kind of elaborate on, on your view? of uh, the, the contours of this uh, this right. Right. Well, you know, my experience in most of these kind of educational reforms, conversations about schools, um, 
my experiences are very top down. The students are kind of the last to know and to be involved. And that's usually when it's already happening to them and that and they're experiencing the effects of it. Um, but my experience has also told me that when you involve young people in the conversation about things that are impacting them and are are and ha happening in their schools, they are very quick to tell you what they think should happen. Very smart about the way things really work and should be. And I think that is in these conversations about parents' bills of rights, what educators and school administration should and should not be doing, the students' voices have been lost. And so the idea to me of a student bill of rights is very appealing because it centers the students' voices, the students who are going to be experiencing whatever fallout from these bills are these you know, prohibitions on certain curriculums or conversations. Um, and lets them kind of come to the table and say, what information do you want access to? What types of things do you want to be educated about? And they will have informed opinions. And my sense from working with students is that the more, the better. They will want to have these conversations. They're having them outside of school. They're having them on social media, often with their families. They, you know, and so they're having them with their peers even during the school day. And so to kind of compartmentalize it, that once you enter a curriculum or enter a classroom, you can't talk about this history, you can't talk about race, um, you know, they'll see that for what it is, is like lacking common sense and, um, and, and want some agency and kind of that determining what they can be taught, what they can handle, what their rights should be to access a sound basic education. So I'm, I'm very supportive of that idea. And I think that if we as you know, adults and maybe people who have institutional resources help students do that and give them resources to be the leaders of this conversation, a, a really, uh, it, it could produce a really excellent student bill of rights that would be much more reflective of what students really want and need and is gonna be best for their education. I think that is such an important point that you just raised because these types of bills assume that white children are too fragile to deal with the realities of this country, that, that you know, they, it will cause them to shut down completely and they won't be able to function. But at the same time, ironically, black and brown children, they aren't too fragile to deal with, you know, systemic racism, but we've got to shield white children from this harsh reality. One of the things that you've said kind of repeatedly when you talk about educating children, you say, you know, educating them in developmentally appropriate ways. Can you share what you mean by that, what that looks like, and how, even though these are really tough issues, um, heartbreaking issues, that young children can still be taught as long as it's developmentally appropriate? Well, I can speak to what I know. I'm not an educator, so I would leave the actual bounds of that to the people who have been researching this and uh, studying it and developing curriculums like the folks that we are is a great example of that. Um, but what I mean by that is 
you know, at a kindergarten level, yes, they might not be ready to read slave narratives, right? Like for many different reasons, but that doesn't mean that they can't start learning some foundational information about what race means. What, what does that mean when we say that, that it is defined by society, that there is some history there and that their racial identity has some impact on their life and the way that they move through the world and the world responds to them. And just like you would build upon that each year, like in math, you don't start with AP calculus, addition, subtraction, multiplication, division. I can't remember what comes next because it's been so long since I've done any math. <laughs> but just in the same way, meeting the child at each level with the conversation about our country's history and the current manifestations of that history of racial privilege and oppression that they can understand stand at that level and have, you know, meaningful conversation about. And again, there are experts who are developing curriculums around this. And I will say, you know, people might have, there might be some kind of differences of when children are ready. And there might be some differences individually when children are, children are ready. But I think we would train educators ideally on recognizing that just like we do when a child is behind in reading, right? Like how do we educate a group of second graders, some might be on kindergarten level, some might be on fourth grade level. We expect educators to do that all the time to kind of master that coming together in a classroom. And I think that can be done around this history as well. And it's another plug for making sure educators have the right training and language to do that. So not pulling the conversation, pulling resources, but pushing in appropriate training and resources to effectually effectively have those conversations in a developmentally appropriate way. Let me jump back uh, just for a second to another point that, that you made about the uh, absence of unions uh, for uh, teachers in uh, North Carolina. North Carolina is a uh, right to work uh, jurisdiction uh, where a person can be fired for no reason uh, any reason uh, that uh, can be conjured up uh, as long as it's not based on uh, race, gender, uh, religion, or one of the uh, protected uh, areas, which makes uh, for teachers a very uh, hairy uh, environment that they are working uh, in. Um, how, how, how do you address this? absence of power from the employee base or from the employment perspective uh, that leaves uh, teachers vulnerable to whatever whim and caprice that uh, school administrators or a local school board might thrust upon them uh, with respect to their ability to uh, teach children, uh, as you say, uh, who are the experts uh, in the education uh, area. So uh, how, how do we address uh, those concerns in that kind of environment? Yeah. I mean, obviously, there are state level protections we could put in place, but I don't see North Carolina going that way anytime soon. We are a right to work state. We seem very set in that for now. But I think there are local 
organizing efforts that can and have been successful around putting protections in place. A great example is Durham. You know, they were there, they've done a lot of organizing around this issue in particular, the NCAE local chapter, the Durham Educators Association, um, alongside um, the school board, you know, worked to pass a resolution that opposed this bill that's been passed in the legislature, you know, and and frame it as like their ability to teach these concepts is connected to our students' right to receive a sound basic education. And so now teachers in Durham have a sense of somewhat safety, right? That their administration and their leadership is not going to fire them for having these conversations, that they are not going to be that that is kind of the 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 value, the expressed value of the administration. So I think that you know local organizing and other communities to the school board to the superintendent um, can be very effective. I know not all communities in North Carolina, all leadership and and school boards is going to be as receptive. But I do think that there are some efforts that can be done at the local level, even school um, training kind of if you if your principal is on board and you can kind of help organize the teachers to say, look, we're concerned about this and we want to have these conversations and we want to make sure that we have your um, support. If a parent complains or if something, you know, comes up, then you know, that level of organizing can even sometimes be effective because kind of working together to have your school community, your, you know, support each other, despite the outside pressures that may be put on um, the teachers and administration from parents or community members who think they know what's being taught and have been kind of thought, been taught through media and other mechanisms that any mention of race is a violation of these bills or a violation of their child's right. So I think that's what I've seen be most effective at this point. So you've also mentioned that parents can play a big role in getting um, these types of, of laws not passed in the first place, overturned, just get some movement in a positive direction. And when we see the media, like what we're seeing on the news and on TV and social media, it's a very vocal group, but that vocal group who are demonizing CRT, they're not necessarily the majority. Can you talk about the kind of related to this question is the importance of allyship, right? So if the only people that we see advocating for an accurate, full, complete discussion of history, which involves race in this country, being black and brown people, how that may give a perception that there aren't those white individuals who may very well even be the majority who are in support of that as well. And so can you talk about the importance of, of allyship and having people and parents and students of all races lending their voice to what they think um, our educational system should look like? It's really critical. I mean, I think a lot about in the way, I, 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 th I see a corollary in um, kind of school safety and some of the pressure we've put on schools to, um, in the wake of a school shooting, to be the ones who do the walkouts and say, teachers should walk out to protest 
um, the lack of gun regulation. Well, we should all walk out. If you if you think teachers and students should be walking out and putting their jobs and discipline records on the line, like why aren't we all walking out of our offices at law schools, at corporations? At, 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 so I and and I think that that collective action from community is necessary to make any kind of change, especially a change where there's this much momentum that is well-funded being pushed back, you know, in the CRT debate. So I would say the same thing, like white parents need to show up in support of these, like these concepts and their students' right to learn about these concepts. If they expect it to be the teachers on the front lines pushing back, if they expect it to be the black and brown parents on the front lines pushing back, then I think that it is, you know, they are not living the values that they profess. Um, and and ultimately, you know, that would be my hope is that white parents could be just as squeaky wheels as the parents pushing back against CRT. Because I, I, I am married to a public school educator. And, you know, so I hear about the squeaky wheel emails he gets. And the time it takes for him to respond and the doubt that creeps in of like, are we doing the right thing? And when there is support, you know, it makes a huge difference. When there is kind of the other view being expressed, even sometimes just privately of saying like, I'm so glad y'all are doing this. I'm so glad you're talking about this. It can really make a huge difference. So even if you're not one of those to go to the school board or write an op-ed, like just even telling your principal, telling your child's teacher or principal, like I'm so against this and, and really I'm hoping you'll have these conversations could make a very big difference, I think. All right, well, we have just a few minutes left and I wanted to ask you about the work that you're doing at Duke University School of Law. Yes, so we um, are a, a, a children's law clinic that takes um, a variety of cases involving the health and well-being of children. We do a lot of education cases, special education cases, school discipline cases. We also have public benefits cases um, around children's rights to Medicaid and um, SSI benefits for, for low-income families of children with severe disabilities. And it's very exciting to get law students involved in this work because everybody's been a child and many people will go on to have children. So whether this is going to be your area of practice or not, understanding these issues that affect children, especially in the education sphere, um, I think is incredibly important and in getting some of those skills to start tying these individual uh, things that are happening with children to some of these larger issues, I think is a, is a key component. And I think a great example of that is most of our clinic students remark on the lack of funding that they are seeing when they go into these schools and that how, yeah. how teacher vacancies and the lack of resources is impacting their clients and the children they're working with. And then the clinic is also involved in broader efforts like Leandro and trying to push for funding at the level needed to sustain the sound basic education right. So getting to make the connection between the individual cases they're working on with the broader upstream lawyering um, to, to make sure our public schools have the resources they need to, to actually effectuate the rights that children have 
you know, I think is a really um, one of my favorite parts of our clinical work and getting to make those connections for law students. Well, Professor Nicholson, thank you so much for taking time and talking with us about the wonderful work that you're doing and the advocacy and, and the allyship. Um, professor Peggy Nicholson, she is a clinical professor of law at the Duke University School of Law and supervising attorney for the Children's Law Center at Duke School of Law. We'd also like to thank you, our listening audience, for spending your Sunday evening with us, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. If you have any questions, please send us an email. You can reach us at legaleagoreview at nccu.edu. And if you miss this show on Sunday, you can find us on the Legal Eagle Review podcast. Until next week, stay informed, engaged, healthy, and safe.